Well, friends, it is so good to gather together in the name of Jesus to worship him, to sing out to him, to celebrate his transformational work in our lives. And, and that's what we've been able to do here uh, today. And what an incredible thing. Can we just thank the Lord again for, for changed lives? And he is changing lives. He does this. It rejoices him to change lives. Uh, my name is Matthew, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here at New Hope Church. And if you are joining us in our online community, welcome to New Hope Church right here in Minneapolis. We're delighted to connect with you. And I'm so grateful to be with you who are right here uh, in this space today on this Sunday here in spring. And uh, the snow's melting, as Pastor Dayton said earlier. We're starting to see some of the grass, and, and uh, the sun is shining. It's you know, starting to feel warm. I saw some kids out yesterday uh, in shorts. Of course, that happens in January, but uh, around here in Minnesota. And then, and then uh, you know, it, it's glorious. And I don't know about you, but who's ready for spring, right? I'm ready for spring. And uh, so when we hear like we have, you know, that there might be a little more snow here in a couple of days, we rebuke that in the name of Jesus. That is, that's from the pit of hell, right? We don't, yeah, right? Uh, so listen, I want to pray right now. I want to invite you to just settle in with me as we turn our attention to this love letter called the Bible and let us, let our Lord meet us where we are here today, okay? So Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the testimonies of your goodness and of your transformational work through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that you take sinners and you set them free. Thank you that we can trust you by faith, faith alone, O God of heaven, for so great a salvation. As we turn our attention right now unto your word, we ask God of heaven that you would meet us, meet us in these moments and show us your glory we ask, God of heaven, that your spirit would move not only in our midst as a family, but also just in our own hearts individually. God of heaven, do a special work to us today. Speak to each one of us. Show us, O oh God of heaven, what it is to be more like your son. Help us to love him more and to elevate him in our affections and in our allegiance. And may it be, O oh God of heaven, that we would leave here a changed people, more like Christ, loving him more fully, loving those around us more genuinely. We beseech you for this, God, and we thank you that you're so willing, and you're powerful, and you're good, and you're going to meet us now. You've got a word for us, so show us your glory and teach us your heart. We love you and we welcome you here in this space and all of God's people said together, amen, amen. All right, so in the northeastern corner of the land of Israel, where underground springs meet the snow melt from Mount Hermon and together those forge the iconic Jordan River that flows south through the land is an ancient site that back in the day was dominant in that region. A place of beauty, a place of wealth, a place of power, a place of paganism, a place that dominated. Some called it Banyas, after the erotic Greek god known as Pan. 
Some called it Caesarea Philippi, named for Tiberius Caesar, the great ruler of Rome, as well as for a man named King Philip the Tetrarch, a small, uh, somewhat rural king that had been given privilege by Rome. The prophet Isaiah, centuries before the time that's going to capture our attention, had said of the great highway running through this community that it was the way to the sea. And by recognizing it as such, he was affirming its importance. It was a major trade route from the spices of India to the ivory of Africa to the oils of Europe. And in this place, in this place, between the trade, between the worship of the god Pan, and between the power that was represented by Rome, money, sex, and power ruled the day, were all the rage. Like three graven images situated next to each other, demanding the worship of the masses. On a certain day, Jesus and his disciples were walking along that highway of which Isaiah had spoken. And they stepped off the highway into the confines of the community. And there they found themselves on one of the main boulevards, right under a large rock outcropping in which were all these niches where idols to the god Pan existed, idols to him, uh, idols to his consorts. And flowing from underneath that rock outcropping was the waters from the spring that met with the snow melt. And the atmosphere was chaotic, if not beautiful. You could smell the aroma of the offerings being given to Pan. It wafted all over the community and beyond. You could hear the sexualized incantations of the worshipers of Pan as they gave him their due. If you looked around, you would see the Roman soldiers on patrol, helmets gleaming, robes flowing, their military might on display with all of their wares. In the midst of all of this were the merchants and the traders with these magnificent camels coming from the east, loaded down with spices and silks. And all of these horses coming in from Egypt with their stoneware and fabrics. And all of these mules and donkeys coming in from Europe with their lumber and pottery and oils. And if you listen carefully, you could hear the cling and the clang of the coins going into the boxes and the bags and so forth. Money, sex, power 
And there stood Jesus with his disciples. And with all of that as the background, with the adulation to Pan and Tiberius and Philip and all the merchants and the traders, with all of that in the backdrop, Jesus asks a question. God asks a question. We're in a sermon series right now called Questions God Asks. And with all of that in the backdrop, God asks a question. And it's found in the Gospels, and our attention today is Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. So you might look there with me, particularly verse 27 and 28. And here's what we see. Here they are in Caesarea Philippi. I'm calling it Banyas Caesarea Philippi. And as they're there on the way, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Now again, notice the context. People are giving their homage to Pan and all of his other compatriot gods. People are giving homage to Tiberius, the great ruler of the empire. People are giving their homage to King Philip, the local ruler. People are moving out of the way for the Roman soldiers as they patrol the streets. People are in awe of the merchants and their rich robes and bags of coinage. And as Jesus is looking around at all these important people, all these important personalities, the question rises up within him, and he looks at his disciples and he says, well, who do people say I am? And it's a great question. And, and I want you to note their answer that they give to him is, you, you can almost see them shifting around a little bit, trying to figure out how to say, oh, how are we going to answer this? I mean, hands in pockets, shifting feet. And they say to him, according to the next verse, verse 27, they say, well, um, you know, some think you are, some think you're Elijah. And this would be a reference uh, to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. It's not an unfair speculation because the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, prophesies that there's going to be a day when Elijah comes. And, and so Elijah had lived and died centuries earlier in the history of Israel. But the prophecy was that he was going to come again. So would he come resurrected? Maybe that's who Jesus is. It's not unfair speculation. Uh, the, the, the disciples say to him, some say you're John the Baptist. Now understand, John the Baptist had just been executed sometime prior. And maybe people didn't know this. Maybe word hadn't gotten around. And so, so they're thinking Jesus is John the Baptist. They, they just hear stories of this uh, strange prophet that's doing all these great things and saying these profound uh, sayings. And, and so they're assuming maybe Jesus is John the Baptist. Or maybe they know John the Baptist died, and, and there's some speculation that some had on this, and Jesus is the reincarnation of him. So that, that was a common thought as well. And, and then the disciples say, or, you know, some people think you're one of the prophets. And this could be a reference to literally some of the prophets of old now reincarnated or resurrected, or, or maybe it is, uh, he is now the next in line of the great prophets, Conveying God's righteousness and justice and so forth. Well, these are the things that the disciples put forward. And then, friends, please hear me. 
Please hear me. I got to tell you, when when I consider what the disciples said, my mind goes to the way we think today. And so the skeptics, when they think of Jesus, or the atheists, when they think of Jesus, or the spiritually hungry who just haven't landed somewhere, when they think of Jesus, and trust me, most all of them do think something of Jesus, their conclusions, not unlike the people who are wondering about Jesus, might be, well, you know, this Jesus is sure a great teacher. He's awfully wise. He's, he, uh, he, has, he heals people. He's got some kind of power. There's something special about him. And this is, what, this is the way we think today about him. And so we see then or now people speculate and they try to have their speculation be rooted in some measure of honesty. I want you to notice what Jesus does, though. Verse 29. It's, it's incredible. Here's his question. You can see it. He asked them, well, who do you say I am? Now, church, I want you to listen to me here. His question, the general question of, well, who do people say I am? That's important. And as we've just said, the disciples respond with a variety of ideas, and they're not unlike ideas that might exist today or people's speculation. But you know what? It's one thing to wonder, what do they think? Now the question is, what do you think? And that question is for you and me as well. That question is for you, and it's for me. Who do you say I am? Right? Who who do you, you know, you, you who have an address right here nearby, you who are growing some roots here in this, this community, you who get up and you look in the mirror a few times a day for whatever the reason might be, when you look into the mirror, you look into your eyes, the question is for those eyes, the question is for the soul behind those eyes, what do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Because some of us listening to my voice right now would be too tempted to dismiss this and just focus on the first question. Well, who do they think Jesus is? And leave it at that. Because then we can remove ourselves from it somehow. Right? Jesus doesn't leave it there, though. Then he turns it, well and good, what they might think. Now, what do you think? What do you think? You who are online, wherever you are right now, what do you think? You who are right here, who do you say Jesus is? Now, we get, we get to the response of Peter. This is great. Now, by the way, something about Peter. So in the Gospel of Mark, which at a different time and with different space, I could explain more, uh, really the writer, Mark, is getting his uh, history account from Peter. So in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, Peter, I mean, he's there, but he's not particularly prominent. He comes and goes like the rest of the disciples. From this point forward, Peter dominates the rest of the, the history with, with Jesus here. The interplay between Peter and Jesus is remarkable. It's worth checking out. But right here's the pivot point of that. Because when Jesus says, who do you, you, and he's looking at every one of his disciples, who, who do you, say that I am. 
Peter blurts out, well, maybe he blurts out. It, it could be that the disciples are like, Peter. Or it could be that Peter doesn't need any coaching from the disciples. He just says it because that's kind of his big personality. He's, he's that way. Either way, Peter declares, you are the Christ. Can we say that together? Let's say it out loud, not Scandinavian, but out loud. Ready? You are the Christ. That's what was declared. And with that language right there, with those words, Peter gives a declaration. He utters some of the most sublime words that have ever been spoken by human language. And for now over 2,000 years, Christians of all stripes on every continent, even, even, sometimes with martyrs' blood shed, willingly, courageously, and humbly declare, Jesus, you are the Christ. May that be the story of all of us, that we would declare such. Amen? So, the question might be, I mean, this is remarkable. And especially when you consider the backdrop, it's incredible. Because by, by Peter giving this declaration, he is in effect saying, you are the Christ and therefore you are better than all of this. Everything around us is less than you. Now why would we assume that? Well, it helps to understand what do we even mean by the word Christ. What, what does that mean? In the Hebrew language, it's Messiah. So if you hear Messiah, you hear Christ, those are interchangeable. They're synonymous. They basically mean the same thing. And in fact, Christ uh, has, initially it was a title. Jesus is the Christ. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are ha Christos, the Christ. And, uh, but then it became a proper name over time. And so now we think of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. What does Christ mean? Well, you'll see it here. All right, so this is my definition. And I, th I think it works for us. By Christ, we mean the prophet, priest, and king. Chosen and anointed by God to redeem sinners and make all things new. All right, so let me say that again here. And, and I, I commit it to you. But by Christ, or, or the Messiah, we mean the prophet, priest, and king chosen and anointed by God. By the way, the word Christ or Messiah literally means the anointed one. That's why I'm using that language so carefully. Chosen and anointed by God to redeem sinners and to make all things new. Now, friends, as it relates to Jesus being a prophet, my definition has that front and center. He's a prophet. My mind is drawn, and you don't need to turn there, but my mind is drawn to the very ancient book of Deuteronomy in our Old Testaments. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, God gives Moses a word. And the word to Moses is, Moses... 
I am going, now listen to me now. He says, Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among the people. All right? And, and his word will have authority. His word prevails. And so this is a prophecy about Jesus given about 1,400 years before Jesus was born. And so when I say Jesus is a prophet, I'm rooting it biblically in the earliest parts of our Bible, a prophecy given by God regarding the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. As it relates to Jesus being a priest, my definition says he's a prophet and a priest. Understand what a priest does. Traditionally, a priest stands in the gap between two parties. He is a mediator. A mediator. And so he represents an offending party, and he represents the offended party. The priests of the Old Testament of ancient Israel represented the broken humanity, which happened to be the Israelites in the specific story, uh, to and before the offended being, and that is the Most High God, Yahweh, the covenant God of heaven and earth. And what that priest would do to mediate the relationship between the offender and the offended is he would shed blood, and the blood that was shed was uh, countless lambs and goats and bulls, and for for generations, this is what the priest did so that the offending people could know that they must have humility and, and must understand that they fall short of the glory of God, which is what sin means. And the offended being could understand that, that he, his interests are being represented and through these priests representing his interests comes mercy. Jesus is the ultimate priest. And hear me, he doesn't need the blood of lambs and bulls and goats. He shed his own blood. He shed his own blood. John the Baptist, who I spoke of a while ago, one day said of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus is the ultimate Lamb, and his blood is the better blood. And so, whereas the priests of old would say, I'm here to mediate between these two parties, and they would take a four-legged creature and sacrifice him on the altar, and the blood would be spilled out, Jesus, this two-legged, fully God, fully man, says, I will be the sacrifice. And he offered himself up, and that's why he died on Calvary's tree. When I say king, prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Jesus, and we talk about this all the time from the platform, Jesus is seated at the right hand of his Father, interceding for the saints. And in that role, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of creation will acknowledge him as such. And so it is the Apostle Paul famously in Philippians chapter 2 puts forward these words. And we, again, we celebrate these often, often from right here. Uh, these words in Philippians 2, 9 and following, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus 
every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We believe this, church, and that's why we say Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, he is the prophet, the priest, and the king chosen and anointed by God the Father to redeem sinners like me and like you. And to make all things new, which is the story of all of the created order and beyond. And so, hear me now, listen to this. In a world full of idols, the whole money, sex, and power routine, and a zillion other idols as well, Jesus stands above them all. Prophet, priest, and king, the one with total authority who mediates all that is needed for reconciliation and wholeness and life, and who declares it with his word and with his deed. He stands above it all, and all of the idols of the age, no matter who they are, no matter how seemingly important they are, listen, church, they are lesser things. Nothing compares to him. Nothing compares to him. By the way, these idols are real. And you know this. They are real. Think of the energy spent around the issue of money. Think of it. The, the intense drive to accumulate it. To protect it. To leverage it. To, to use it so that we can be something, make a name for ourselves, have, have influence. And money's not wrong. Jesus never says money is evil. He says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Notice the difference. Notice the difference. Money's not the problem. It's the love of it, the worship of it, the idolatry of it. Think of the energy spent around issues of sex and sexuality. It dominates our headlines. Every single day, you and I open up the news on our phones, on our tablets, whatever it is, and we, there's headline after headline after headline relating to some issue about sex or sexuality, something erotic, something, something that, that presents the beauty of sex and sexuality as that which is less than God's best intention. And we see it, we see it uh, play out amongst the people that are beautiful and powerful out in the world and, and doing all the things that they do and we get to hear their stories and who wants to hear their stories? Well, sadly, enough of us do and that's the problem. But then even if we weren't paying attention to their stories, we've got our own stories in the quiet corners of our own homes or our own hotel rooms with our phones in the dark at night scrolling through, giving ourselves our affection, our allegiance, our attention to things that tear us down. And you know exactly of which I speak. And as if that's not enough, issues of identity, sexual identity, all of this dominates the culture today. It's an idol. And think of the energy spent on power and the preservation of it, the taking of it, the 
the uh, wielding of it. From the hallowed halls of Washington, D.C. to the courtrooms of New York City to the airstrips of Waco, Texas to the, to, to the uh, fields of Ukraine or of uh, Yemen or Ethiopia to the campgrounds and city parks of Iowa. And that's just in the political or geopolitical realm. What about in our places of work, our vocations, and the way people throw power around for their own uh, perceived importance, even in church? And then in our families and our neighborhoods and so forth. Power's all the rage as well. We worship it because we think it gives us identity and meaning in our lives. And as if money, sex, and power weren't enough, a question for you and me is, are we cognizant of all of the other idols before whom we bow day in and day out? And they are a plenty. They are many, and they are powerful. And they suck the life out of us. The uh, scholar Richard Keyes, he gives this wisdom. Notice, notice what he says here. He says this, idols are not just on pagan altars. All right, so let me pause a moment. If you and I think that idols are merely these golden statuettes on, on uh, finely crafted wooden tables, we are naive. He goes on, idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The Apostle Paul associates the dynamics of human greed, lust, cravings, covetousness, with idolatry. Unless we wonder, we just looked at what Paul pens. So for example, uh, if I go to Philippians chapter 3, now you can go there if you'd like, I'm looking in verse 5 and following, just listen to these words that Paul writes. I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. And of these, he says, these are idolatry. So it's easy for you and me to think of the big ones like sex, money, and power. But... Go further, on account of these the wrath of God is coming, and in these you too once walked when you were living in them. And it's almost like he wants to insert parenthetically right here, but oh Christian, oh disciple, things are better for you now. And he goes on in verse 8, but now you must put them all away. And then he lists more, right? These aren't the so-called big ones like money, sex, and power like you see embodied in Bonia Caesarea Philippi. Listen to these. Anger, how many of you stay angry all the time? Wrath? Malice? Any of you deal with the people around you maliciously? You may not deal with them directly, but do you think of them maliciously? 
slander. When you impugn someone's character, that is gossip and it's slander. Obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. I mean, the, Paul says these are idols as well. And so when we see Paul's list, we realize Dr. Keyes is correct. It's not just something you, you put on an altar with, with you know, some gold-encrusted figurine. This is the stuff of life, the stuff within us, the essence of things within our souls. And these things can destroy us. And you juxtapose that to Jesus. The lesser things to the greater. No small wonder that in one of the most tender letters that we have uh, in the whole Bible, in the New Testament, 1 John, written by the Apostle John. I love this. I love John. So uh, real quick, uh, he, uh, he was known when he met Jesus, he was known as the son of thunder. He had a, an angry attitude and spirit and uh, would just as soon chew you out, cuss you out, and call fire down from the heavens to burn you up if you didn't satisfy him. There's actually a story in, in the Gospels about that. And then as God does his thing over time, toward the end of his life, John is known as the apostle of love. And 1 John is his incredibly tender letter. And it's full of such riches. And you get to the very last words 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, the very last words of his letter, and he says simply this, children, keep yourself from idols. I love that. Hear the tenderness of that, the appeal, children, keep yourself from idols. And he's not just talking children like, like, like these beautiful little girls and boys that I see here in our room right now. He's talking children like me, a 54-year-old man, broken, sinful man, but thank God I'm redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He's talking about people like you and me, children. Keep yourself from idols. For sure. For sure. I want to pause right here. And this, there's going to be this awkward moment of silence. And what I want to do in it is ask you, to ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit, what are the idols that I bow down to in my own life? Ask him to show you, to convict you. And lest you be fearful of that, and I get this, trust me, I hate those questions of God. Because he always answers those questions. Lest you be fearful, remember, he loves you with an undying love. And you're safe with him. So ask him, what are the idols I'm worshiping? Just let that sit a minute. It is not a small matter that Peter, in the midst of the aromas of the incense and offerings, 
and the drumbeat of the Roman soldiers on patrols and the clinging and clanging of the chains at the tables of the merchants and traders. All the noise of sight and sound and smell where everybody seems to be giving homage to all these personalities. Pan, Zeus, Tiberius, Philip, and on it goes. It's no small matter that with all of that and the backdrop that would vie for our attention, their attention, Peter says, above it all, he says, you are the Christ. You are the one. And in a world where the idols of our ages are vying for our allegiance, our affections, our, our adoration, Jesus Christ stands powerfully apart from it all. Nothing is like him. No one is like him. Nothing comes close. All of it lesser. He greater. All of it temporal. He eternal. All of it dark. He light. All of it vile because of how it destroys the soul. He life-giving. Unless we wonder, we would look no further than his death and resurrection and his ascension and his session. And guess what? He's coming triumphantly in glory. He's going to return soon. And because of this sin, listen to me, church, sin and death and the devil and money and sex and power and whatever other idols we bow down to, none of those things have the final word. None of them do. None of them do. He is victorious over it all. Do you believe that? Are you willing to believe that? I want to close with four very simple directives, if I may be so bold. Statements for you and me to take hold of and, and just play with. And, and you'll see them here in front of you if you're watching online, wherever you are. And listen, as, as we put these forward, I need you to hear me, please. Please hear me. A loving Heavenly Father wants to speak to you. He has something for you right now. He has something he wants to reveal. He has something he wants to root out because he wants you to enjoy life to the fullest in Christ. And I'm speaking largely to an audience of Christians who have forgotten. And I say that because I know I forget way too easily. So these four things, here's the first one. You'll see it, you'll see it in front of you here. Believe that in this world of idols, there is good news. There is gospel for you. Believe this. In this world of idols, there's good news for you. 
And here's the way the world, the flesh, and the devil work. They want you to believe that the idol is all there is. That there is no hope beyond this. That you are entrapped by this addiction. You are entrapped by that affection. You are entrapped by that allegiance. And there is no recourse beyond that entrapment. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because Jesus Christ rules over it all. And he brings good news to you and to me. And it's no small wonder that the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us so that we could be free, forgiven, made new. That's good news, friends. That is good news. Number two. Secondly, see it here? Now, repent of any idolatry. Let me time out for a moment. If you guys would be kind to leave that there, but just listen to me, friends. Hear me. Churches don't talk about repent anymore. Well, actually, we do. You know what we do? We want them to repent. Are you listening to me? We want them to repent. We want those people over there to repent. We want those people out in the public square to repent of all their vileness. We're always, we think about repent, but it's about what all those other people need to be doing. And church, I am here to tell you, we sometimes wonder what it will look like for there to be a revival in our land. What will it look like for church to rise up in triumphant uh, mission for Jesus? And it begins with repentance right here, right with you. And me. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. And so when we're looking in the mirror, as opposed to out the window at the others, when we're looking in the mirror, that's where the repentance begins. And now I've crafted this here intentionally because it gives a bit of a definition of repentance. All right? Repent of any idolatry, whatever that might be, at the feet of Jesus. Cast it down, repudiate it, turn away from it, walk away from it. Go at Jesus' side. Walk with him. Walk with him. Cast it down. Walk with him. Repent. Confess. Lay it out. Lord, this is what I give my allegiance to. This is what I really worship. And renounce it. And walk with him. Walk with Jesus. Number three. Now, I've said this for years, and uh, my own personal story is such that this is personally very powerful. I want you to hear me. You become what you think about all day long. You, you become what you think about all day long. If you're thinking about money, sex, and power, one or all of those things, that's what you're going to become. That's going to define you and control you and trap you. If you're thinking about slander and gossip and you're peddling with it incessantly and you're striking out either directly or indirectly toward a neighbor with slanderous words, that, that's who you become. You're a slanderer. That's who you are. If you're filthy, that's who you are. A, a, person, a man becomes what he thinks about all day long. A woman becomes what she thinks about all day long. So then for you and me, the issue is, 
let's think about Jesus. And before we say, well, that's such a superficial request, let him become the background noise of your life. Friends, when the disciples and Jesus are standing there on that boulevard in Bonia Caesarea Philippi, and they've got the, the worshipers of Pan and all of their sexualized language singing to this little idol, this Greek god, and they've got the Roman soldiers bouncing up and down the streets on patrol, and they've got the merchants and the traders with all of their wares, and the aroma and the noise, all of it, would be overwhelming if their eyes, if those disciples' eyes and ears are on all of the stuff. But at that moment in time, when Jesus Christ looked at those disciples eyeball to eyeball and said, but who do you say I am? All of a sudden, all of that noise disappeared and the only proper defining response was, you are the Christ. And that ought to be our, that ought to be our story. We think about him and all the other stuff gets lesser and lesser and lesser. We think about him and all the other stuff fades away. And the Apostle Paul gives credence to this back in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and following. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, he says. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Praise God for that. Lastly, number four. And it's a bit of a mouthful, but here it is. With every breath, every thought, every step, every word, every testimony of Jesus declare, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. When the idols of this age come to you and want to beckon you into their grasp, nope, because he's the Christ. He's the prophet, priest, and king who rules over all. You're the Christ. When someone says to you, and what is your hope? His name is Jesus, and he's the Christ. When Jesus says to you in the uh, evening hours, who do you say I am, child? You are the Christ. He's our all in all. And everything else is less than. Period. Let me ask you to stand with me, friends. I know some of you hearing me today are finding the Lord speaking to you in some ways that are very personal and maybe unsettling because of what it is you have erected in front of you toward which you bow down. Remember what I said. He loves you. The Lord loves you so much. Let him do his work. Receive him. Welcome him. Cast it all before him and walk with him. And let him heal and give you hope. 
He is triumphant. And he will rule over all. And he has power to meet you right where you are today. Father, dismiss us now in Jesus' name. The Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king. Chosen and anointed to redeem a sinner just like me. And to make my life new. He's above all, and all else is lesser than. And for this we give you glory and praise. And all God's people said, Amen.